0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ritpana Patkiri, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Julia Kowalski. Julia is an assistant professor of global affairs at the Cure School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame, where she is also a concurrent faculty in the Department of Anthropology and Gender Studies program. Her research interests lie in the areas of gender, kinship, women's rights, personhood, gendered violence, and everyday institutional practices. Her research has been funded by Fulbright Hayes, the Woodrow Wilson Foundation, and the American Institute for Indian Studies. Her work has been published in American Ethnologist, Political and Legal Anthropology Review, and Social Politics. She writes and edits features online for Somatosphere and Anthropology News. Today, we are going to talk about her new book, Counseling Women, Kinship Against Violence in India, which has been published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2022. Julia, I welcome you
1: to this discussion. Hi, thank you so much for for having me and for engaging with the book.
0: Right. So let me begin by asking you about your main motivation behind writing this book. You know, what was it?
1: Yeah. Um. So you know, when I was initially designing dissertation research, um, I, I had been studying South Asia since I was an undergraduate in college, and I knew I really wanted to look at how people in urban India were talking about the family, um, especially in the context of you know post nineteen ninety one economic and social reforms. I was really curious about that, and I really quickly found you know even just through You know, Hindi language study and and initial kind of pilot work, that gender-based violence was really central in how people were talking about changes to the family, Um, and that it was really seen as a crisis um, by lots of different social actors. And so I wound up um, in these family counseling centers as field sites where people were working through these questions about family, social transformation, and what that really meant, especially for women. And, you know, when the time came to start to make this initial project into a book, um, and as time passed, as it does when you're revising a book, um, I, I got really interested in particular in how poorly understood I felt um the women's movement in India was outside of India. Um, so I often found, you know, I'm, I'm based in the United States and I often found in speaking to American audiences that there was an assumption that India was somehow behind, um, in terms of things like addressing gender-based violence and nothing could be further from the truth. Um, in fact, you know, you only have to spend about five minutes, um, learning about the women's movements in India to realize how deeply rooted and sophisticated they are. And, um, in particular, how sophisticated they are when it comes to mobilizing around issues of gender-based violence, both in terms of lobbying the state and in terms of supporting vulnerable women and families. And so as I was revising the book, especially in the wake of things like the 2012 Nirbhaya case, it became really important to me to help communicate that sophistication um, and the kind of complexities that arose um, in that context, especially to audiences, um, I think outside of India, that don't always have as clear a picture of what all is happening.
0: Right. Very interesting that you mentioned this, because I also wanted to, of course, ask you about, you know, your field site and the methods that you use in this research.
1: Yeah. Um, well, so counseling is something that, it, you know, especially using the kind of English language label counseling, it's all over. Um it's all over, at least uh, in Rajasthan, people, and in, in North India, you hear about it happening at police stations, there's counselors attached to the family courts, um, and it's kind of an, an amorphous label for a bunch of different interactive practices meant to support women and kind of help triage them as they're, ent- as they're figuring out what to do in cases of harm or conflict at home. Um, so my field sites were all women's rights organizations that were offering counseling, usually as one among um, multiple different services offered under a single umbrella. Um, so I was focusing on the counseling center wings of these organizations, but they also um, often offered legal aid clinics um, to help women who were pursuing things like divorces. Um, one of them offered a, had a short stay home, a domestic violence shelter that they also ran, um, and they were also, you know, as women's rights organizations, really heavily involved in coordinating and lobbying around things like. Implementing the Protection of Women from Domestic Violence Act, which was uh, relatively recently implemented at the time that I was in the field. And so my my methods were really like classic ethnographic participant observation. Um, So I was able to spend a lot of time with the family counselors themselves who are middle class paid staff at these organizations, um, I was able to observe their sort of intake interviews and conversations with counseling clients. And I also just spent a lot of time kind of shadowing them in their working lives. I helped type up forms because um, I was a very fast typer um, or addressing, you know, envelopes or filling out paperwork. Um, and I spent a lot of time kind of getting to know counselors very well. Um, and I also was able to spend time interviewing their orga- the organizers who ran these centers and kind of shadowing them at, at local meetings um, and sensitization sessions and training sessions that they ran um, with, for example, the police. And, you know, throughout all of this, like, like any good ethnographer, I was also kind of keeping my ear to the ground and noticing kind of connecting tissues that were connecting threads that were appearing in the newspapers at the time, The, the debates, for example, about high court rulings on the Protection of Women Against Domestic Violence Act and so on and so forth. Um, and I think in particular, you know, I, I'm trained in an anthropological tradition that draws from the subfield of linguistic anthropology, which encourages us to pay really close attention to how people's ideas about the role of language and interaction connect what they say and how they speak to a wider political economy. And so the kind of core of the of the book is paying really careful attention to what's unfolding within the interactions between counselors and the families that they're supporting.
0: Right. So now there's also a lot of discussion on positionality in ethnographic research. So do you think that your position as an outsider and non-Indian impacted the study in any way?
1: Yeah, I think it absolutely did. I mean, ethnography, is a, it's a weird methodology, you know, It—it because it, it fundamentally relies on our our status as outsiders, in in one way or another, and then of course, like you just said, it's extraordinarily important to be transparent and thoughtful about how we are outsiders, um, and also how we are insiders, as we as we've seen with some recent cases. Um, so, you know, I think on some level, the methodology itself assumes that that our status as an outsider is going to impact the study, in part because it means people have to explain what's going on to us because we're sort of we have kind of kid brain. We don't really know what's going on. Um, So I think that, you know, obviously in my case, I was very visibly um, not Rajasthan. I'm not from Rajasthan. I'm not from Jaipur. Um, And so I think that had a couple of different impacts. So first of all, a lot of foreigners actually come through these NGOs in Rajasthan um, in different capacities. Um, Either they're there as part of like transnational, Monitoring and evaluation teams, or they're there as like um, volunteer tourism students on like gap years. So, and and the presence of these kind of like I heard a lot a lot about like previous foreigners who had been at the institutions where I was working, um, and I think in some ways it actually helps mark the NGO as kind of globally connected professional. Um, expert. So in some ways, it's a little it was a little less weird for me to be there than I had initially worried it would be. Um, I also think an interesting way to think about this sort of positionality is also to think about like what, you know, the ways in which our interlocutors try to frame us and frame and understand our presence. And the counselors, you know, that I worked the most closely with, um, initially sort of thought I was a trainee. So they were like, great, you're learning how to counsel. Would you like to practice counseling with this family? Um, And I would say, no, (laughs) no, 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 absolutely not. Um, And then eventually um, a few of them would start to um, tell kind of clients or or other folks who come to visit the center. Oh, she's here to learn from us how to counsel so she can go back and teach people in the U.S. how to do it because they don't know. Um, which is actually not an inaccurate description of, of what I was there to do. Um, and so that really kind of framed how I also understood my role and also how I kind of responded to, you know, spaces I could or couldn't be in these field sites, um, when to kind of absent myself or, um, you know, go help sort paperwork in the other room or something if it started to feel like my presence wasn't really, um, useful or, or supported. Um yeah, and then I, I also think a kind of key piece of this is that being an outsider often leads people like leads people to assume that you don't know a lot of things um, and they have to explain them to you. And that is really, again, if if you're sort of ethnographically oriented, it can be really, really fascinating to see like what do different kinds of people here think I really need to understand about this context, and what do they think I don't know or don't understand? Um, and so that was another kind of piece of being an outsider.
0: Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Well, uh, so what role do you think family counselling as a mediating strategy plays in addressing the question of gender violence in the Indian context? And
1: who are these counsellors? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, this is a hotly contested topic in um, kind of gender-based violence interventions in in India, um, and or at least it was when I was when I was in the f- field, and my sense is it continues to to be so. So if you talk to to experts in um, social work and counseling, there's a lot of debate about whether counselors are primarily social workers, you know, whose job it is to help uh, clients kind of navigate a complex institutional world, or if they're primarily kind of psychological actors who are th- therapeutic in their work and. Um, This is about kind of supporting the psyches of individuals. There's a huge debate and there's also a huge debate about, you know, regardless of which of those two frameworks you want to take on, um, how professionalized do counselors have to be? Do they need graduate degrees in counseling or can they just be sort of well disposed, friendly people who are good at giving advice? Um, in the context where I was doing my field work, this was further complicated by the fact that these are paid jobs that, that weren't paid particularly well at the time, um, which meant that the organizations were able to hire largely vernacular speaking middle-class women um, who tended to have BAs and in some cl- cases master's degrees as well in like a range of different fields from psychology to political science. By and large, it seemed pretty clear that the kind of elite organizers were recruiting um, from, for example, students at the colleges where they taught to work as counselors. And so in a lot of ways, you know, the family counselors were really different, sociologically speaking, from the activists who were running the sites where they were employed and i think this shapes how counseling operates as a mediating strategy because it mediates in multiple ways right so the counselors are mediate they're like literally mediating within these family conflicts they're helping women figure out how to interface or not interface with the state or other organizations but at the same time there're these interesting in-between figures because they're not quite legible as women's rights activists in their own right and in fact, sometimes, as as you know, you saw in the book, they often behave and and um, intervene in ways that kind of feel like they run a little bit counter to the explicit goals of women's rights activism in North India. But then at the same time, you know, they are relative to the clients and the families that they serve. They are experts. And so they're also mediating figures in that sense as well, which makes them really, really interesting because they're both like implementing these women's rights goals, but then are often targets of interventions themselves to sensitize them further, or to make sure that they're kind of taking on the correct political postures. Um, so they're they're really fascinating, really, really fascinating figures.
0: Right, uh, you know, I also want to ask if you think that an individualistic notion of how women's rights should be, push the already vulnerable women into even more precarious positions and if yes, if you could also give a few examples from your work.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I think this is a really difficult um, and important question for us to think about. Um, and there's definitely, you know, within anthropology and sociology, I think a, a lot of debate and discussion about the ways in which a rights based discourse tends to focus on the individual in a way that can sometimes um, undermine people's really valued understandings and desires for relationality in their communities. Um, so you know, I think one reason why counseling exists in the, in the first place, one of the kinds of roles that it's fulfilling, is the fact that in many cases, you know so so one kind of element of women's rights activism in North India says, um, we should follow the lead of of the woman. We should do what she wants to do, right? Like so whatever she's whatever support she's seeking, we should help her access it. Um, which you know does fit with a kind of individualistic story about women's autonomy and is very important. but then you you get into these kind of paradoxical situations where the vast majority of the women whose cases I observed or read about, um, in these counseling centers, what they wanted was to um, sustain and deepen their relationships, usually with their in-laws and um, their husbands and, and their husbands' families. That um, they really wanted these multigenerational joint family relationships to, to work, um, which, which then kind of puts the institution in a little bit of a double bind, because a lot of how um, legalistic conceptions of women's rights operate it, it tends to actually deepen conflict and division in the household. Um, and so, you know, this is one of the kinds of uh, dilemmas that counselors have to mediate as they're working with families. Um, so I, I think a really great example of this that I've, I've written about, I think I write about it in the book and in a couple other publications as well, is um, there was a, a client who was kind of a working class client. She'd been coming her case was very, very long um, and it was not getting resolved largely because her husband would keep coming to these joint sessions and like promising to do things that he didn't do. Um, but basically, um, the, the problem was that her husband had taken up with another woman who he was not married to, and um, crucially, this woman had had a son um, while the client had had only daughters. And so she was in this miserable situation in this joint household. Um, her in-laws were being really, you know, terrible to her and abusive. And um, her husband kept promising to kind of give her resources like a sewing machine or um, other kinds of, of income generating support so that she could gain a modicum of independence and also have a little bit of like her own income stream to care for her own kids because she was feeling really insecure about that. Um, but he kept not doing it. <laughs> um, and so there was one day when she kind of showed up unannounced um at the at the counseling center She was really frustrated there'd been like a new turn in the household drama and um you know she she said you know basically like i like screw this i'm i'm gonna take my rights um and what she said was i'm gonna take my hook um and the counselors so you know you'd think okay we're in a women's rights institution great, you're here to take your rights. We're here to help you get your rights. Let's go. Um, But what the counselor said to her in that moment was, don't, oh, don't say that. Don't say that. Um, And so this was pretty early on in field work. um, And so I found this quite striking and puzzling. Um, But what became very clear to me is that what the counselors were saying was not, like, you are not entitled to this support or you're not entitled to these rights. What they were really concerned about was how this client was framing her demands and the ways in which her way of speaking and claiming her rights might actually put her on a path that left her more isolated and materially and socially vulnerable than she already was. And I think there's a lot to unpack there. Um, Like I said, I've I've written about this in a number of different places. Um, But I think even the word choice of Huck versus Adhikard, which is the kind of way that women's rights gets translated or gets kind of deployed in in Hindi settings, even that I think um, really played a role in their sense of, you know, well, don't put it that way, don't say it like that. And so part of what this helped me kind of notice was the way that counselors were dealing with this tension between the kind of individualistic framing of like a woman's rights or human rights framework, and the desires for relationality of their clients was by paying really close attention, not just to the rights that were being claimed, but to how different family members were calling forth their duties and obligations to one another. And so this is part of why I started to pay really close attention to how counselors were understanding the role of interaction in acting on violence.
0: Right. So how do you think kinship is central in addressing cases of gender violence in your field site, that is Rajasthan?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that so this kind of builds on the example I was just I was just giving and um, and what I was just saying, because I think that in, in a context where you're trying to blend um, these different understandings of rights and relations, kinship actually can become a really potent tool. Um, and I should say, too, that when I when I talk about kinship, you know, I'm coming from a, a tradition um, in, in anthropology and allied disciplines that sees kinship not as a kind of static structure, but as a generative tool through which people are making sense of the meanings, um, the kind of moral and material meanings of their relations with others, um, whether those are like family relations or other kinds of, of relationality, like like we see in sort of concepts of the nation state. So um, in terms of thinking about how kinship understood in those terms addresses gender violence. Um, again, I think the place where this really emerged for me in in my in kind of observing and, and spending time with counselors was in how counselors were thinking about interaction. So um, in the book, I write a lot about this, this kind of approach to speech and interaction um, that I call careful speech. Um, and I'm drawing on um, the kind of Hindi um, Hindi phrase that gets used a lot in counseling, which is um, piar se samjana, um, right? To explain or to make people understand with, with love or with affection. And I found that this was really where counselors were deploying ideas about morally valuable kinship relations to address violence. Um, and in part, that had to do with a shift from approaching violence as, okay, this is a thing that happened in the past. We're going to analyze what happened in the past. We're going to diagnose it as violence. And with that diagnosis, we're going to move forward, which is often how um, transnational approaches to gender based violence kind of frame best practices. And instead, what they really focused on was the fact that you know kinship is a cyclical process um, it's a cyclical process right it's um, reproductive it it's about kind of people shifting in household hierarchies over time and so the kind of strategies around careful speech that they both deployed as counselors and cultivated in clients were focused on getting family members to to think about like what is the valued future that we want to work together towards. Um, So rather than focusing on labeling violence in the past, we're going to think about how can we kind of behave as if we're going to bring this valued future into being. And um, in doing that, they they drew a lot on these kind of widespread ideologies about language and relationality um, that we see throughout North India. Um, and so that's one kind of core piece of this. Uh, another piece of this that I think is really important, especially if we're thinking comparatively about you know, what's happening in North India versus other parts of the world. Um, I mean, there's a basic empirical difference in, in, in Jaipur and I think across North India, which is that a lot of household violence is not limited to spousal relationships. It's often intergenerational, right? Um, Mothers-in-law, older sisters-in-law, or even if it's between husbands and wives, it's often problematized as a wider familial problem, right? Like what's going on with these parents that they can't get their son to treat his wife better. and so that also shapes how kinship kind of comes into the picture as a tool, because you're not just looking at one relationship between a husband and a wife. You're looking at this like really complex set of extended kin relations that can be called upon in different ways um, to enforce or undermine moral obligations and, and other forms of care.
0: All right. So, do you think kinship becomes a resource through which people imagine and act on, you know, new familial features? F- sorry, futures.
1: Um, yeah, I, I do, and I, and again, I think this requires um, thinking differently about how we approach kinship as an analytic category. Um, so, you know. I think in a lot of women's rights rhetoric, both in India and internationally, and certainly here in the United States, kinship is often seen as like this kind of static, fixed structure that is inherently oppressive to women. And from which women and frankly, everybody has to be like extracted so that they can become individuals in these kinds of kind of modern Contract-driven relationships. This is a very, very old um, and long-standing approach to kinship that goes back um, really almost to the Enlightenment, um, and it, it really, like, really saturates women's rights rhetoric around the world, um, and rightfully so because a lot of kinship <laughs> structures around the world are de- they're deeply patriarchal. Um, they center men above women. Um, but at the same time, you know, that that's really out of step with how I think a lot of qualitative social scientists understand relationality and kinship, um, which is as much more flexible, fluid and, and generative. And so, you know, in the in the intro of the book, I talk about treating kinship as awkward, um, right? So like, a lot of women's rights rhetoric is, is uh, framed around a kind of very linear progress narrative, right? Where we move from like tradition to modernity. Um, We move forward, not backwards. And something called kinship is associated with tradition and backwardsness. And um, by treating kinship as awkward, so it's not forward, it's not like on this kind of linear path for forward or backwards. It's this kind of different kind of movement. Um, I think that that can really help us think about how um, the kinds of relationality and ideas about entitlement and obligation that we often associate with um, culturally specific notions of kinship um, can can be harmful, can be constricting, but can also be deeply generative precisely because ideas about kin relations are some of the primary tools through which people everywhere imagine and act on the future. Um, and so that like trying to bring those two things together, which is really tricky, um, was a core part of thinking about how to analyze Um, sort of what I what I'd seen in the field and do justice to these really sophisticated, interactive techniques that counselors were generating as they worked with women.
0: Right. So uh, it's a very interesting book, very innovative as well. And I wanted to know how the book engages with the already existing literature in this area.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really exciting time to be writing about this topic, um, both in India and globally, because there's just a tremendous amount of um, different kinds of research being done um, by different kinds of scholars. I mean, even at my own institution, I have the privilege of working with scholars from fields as diverse as development economics and psychology um, who are also looking at gender-based violence around the world. But I think one thing that... You know, so there's there's a lot to say about this, in the context of of the work that's been done on gender-based violence interventions in India, in particular. I think we have a lot of really phenomenal work um, that's really examined um, law and the implementation of legal infrastructures to address gender-based violence, and I think that work is really important because those laws are really important. Um, but I think one thing that that this work does a bit differently is that it doesn't it actually starts from how people are conceptualizing family and kinship rather than starting from how the law is framing and problematizing violence um, and so I, and I think it's important that we have kind of both of those perspectives in the mix in part too because that shifts who we're paying attention to and who our interlocutors are in the field um, And I think another piece of this is that coming from this kind of um, linguistic anthropological background, It's really important, I think, to attend to not just kind of the outcome of counseling interactions, which, you know, if you just look at outcomes, what it looks like what's happening is that these counselors are just sending women back to abusive families. Um, And that's not incorrect. (laughs) But if you actually pay attention to what unfolds beat by beat within the interaction itself, you can see that something much more sophisticated is going on in terms of how counselors are trying to help women and their families reorient to one another um, and sort of redeploying and slightly transforming understandings of what kin relations mean, what they should look like, and what that means for a kind of improved future for women in the household. So I think that's something that, that this text does um, that has a lot to contribute to how we think about really big picture questions about intervening um, with regards to gender-based violence in India and, and elsewhere. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, last question. Uh, Could you also talk about the future scope of research in this area?
1: Um, Yeah, yeah. So I I was thinking um, when I was preparing about, again, so much to say here. Um, So I think one kind of direction that is really exciting for me and and has really changed since I started this project um, versus now having the book come out is that You know, I think um, in the West, particularly in the United States, just in the past like five to 10 years, there's been a real rejection of the criminal justice system as a tool for addressing gender-based violence. Um, So in the United States, we see increasingly mainstream debates about what's called carceral feminism, um, real questioning of the kind of historical relationship between mainstream um, liberal feminism and these um, really harmful coercive state mechanisms like the prison system in the United States. And so what we're seeing actually is a a move towards community-based forms of mediation and support that really mirror what's been happening for like the past 50 years um, in in India and in other parts of the world, Um, which means that I think there's this really um, exciting moment where I think a lot of places in the global north stand to learn a lot from um, the struggles and successes of women's movements in places like India and other parts of the world where like state capacity has never quite been enough to fully rely on the state. And so people have had to deal with and manage, you know, solving these issues within communities where the very kind of interactive tools you're using are going to also carry with them, some of the hierarchical and patriarchal dynamics of the community itself. Um, And I think we're just starting to see um, folks in the global North, like notice this as an issue here as well. So um, I think there's a lot of really exciting scope for comparative work, um, both like, from like south to south connections and that have long existed and um, continue to be really generative and then learning from those connections um, here in the global north as we start to think about how we can back away from a state that's um, coercive and carceral. So that's that's one direction that I think is really exciting. And there's lots of really amazing work that's starting to happen. Um, The other direction, which is where some of of my own research is taking me right now, is that I think that, um, you know, we. We don't always pay close attention to um, what anthropologists call the uh, the role of language ideology in a lot of these kinds of interventions, um, not just with regards to gender-based violence, but um, development and democracy more broadly. So a lot of institutions that are designed to... Um, do things like address gender-based violence or inequality in other forms, really rely a lot on interaction, right? Like someone's going to teach you, they're going to sensitize you, um, they're going to educate you in some way. And this is all interactive work. Um, But people haven't really paid a lot of attention to the ideologies that shape and drive those interactions. And so I think there's also a lot of scope as we're thinking about how we study these interventions and how we think about these interventions, especially in a moment when... There are a lot of questions about um, the future of both the development industry and also of democracy. in a lot of places around the world starting to notice the way that people's ideologies about language and interaction um, both like reflect and reproduce wider political economic patterns has become really important. Um, and there's a lot of room for research and a lot of really interesting work that's starting to get done um, in that arena as well.
0: Right. Thank you so much, Julia, for joining me today and talking about your book. I really enjoyed reading it and I'm sure that our listeners will enjoy listening to you as well as reading your book. So thank you once again.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much.